Welcome to a special episode of the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor of the Philanthropy Journal. This week, we share conversations recorded at PowerPlay, Disruption for Good, the NC Center for Nonprofits statewide conference that took place in Durham on November 27th and 28th. The conference drew hundreds of attendees from across the region, and participants sat down with one another to discuss issues impacting the sector in North Carolina. Well, good morning, uh, Catherine. My name is Abram Flores. I'm uh, from Catholic Charities. I'm the Director of Operations. Nice to meet you. I'm Catherine Turner, and I'm President of Global Citizen LLC, which is a consulting firm that works in the U.S. and internationally. Um, And we work with nonprofits as well as uh, companies across the sectors to advance global competence, equity, diversity, and inclusion, and also international public health. Great. So for Catholic Charities, um, we have a large... um, a large pl- platform where we, we actually help um, from counseling, um, parenting classes. We have food pantry. We have the second largest food pantry in the eastern um, North Carolina, which is here in Raleigh, and we are about to open another one in Durham. Uh, we, have, we have eight regions that covers the 54 state um, eastern counties of North Carolina. So we have eight offices, and the main office is here in Raleigh. Okay, good. Well, it's great to meet you. Okay, great to meet you. Thank you. What is one piece of advice you will give government leaders in your community to enhance how they can benefit your stakeholders? Yeah, so I think it's a great question. And uh, whenever I'm advising any leaders, uh, I would always advise them when we're talking about how to best benefit stakeholders, first identify who their stakeholders are and um, really kind of map out the their stakeholders and to to develop methods for really engaging and listening to their stakeholders. I think too often people in leadership positions are in, you know, in the position of talking to people and telling people what they're doing rather than listening and asking. And so holding community forums, town meetings, um, and really asking people what they need, what they want, and engaging in active listening with them, which uh, active listening is a practice that Many of us don't really do very well. Um, And that when we're organizing those kinds of community engagement events, we really need to think about um, how we're engaging communities. Are we partnering with existing nonprofits, local community-based organizations that are already on the ground, already have relationships and trust built with communities, um, and can really ensure that people know about the events, can come out, make sure they're accessible, so they're held at times and places that are convenient for working people, um, that people with children, that there's child care, uh, that there's food offered, and even compensation uh, possibly, or some kind of way of, of compensating people for their time and their, you know, their participation. Um, and that they also really make a commitment to following through on what they're learning and hearing from stakeholders. So that they have a specific plan for how they're going to take what they learn from stakeholders and feed that into their policy making. Um, and that they also communicate that back to the people that they've engaged so people don't feel like they're wasting their time by sharing their ideas with their government leaders. But one piece of advice that I normally give to government leaders, uh, I used to be in the service in the Army, so I re- just retired about a month ago, uh, 20, 22 years ago, uh, 22 years in the service. Yeah. That um, uh, my job in the army was pretty much what this question is talking about. Uh, we go out uh, to all the countries to help develop systems. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and what I normally see in, in government leaders are they, they stay at the second level analysis, which is pretty much at the state level, because that's what they re represent. So it's very hard for them to lower themselves down a little bit to the first level analysis, which is individual, and they lose track of how they can support. And that always telling that you need to understand the system that you're hating, but not at your level. You have to understand it at the level that you want to provide the, the service. And that's very hard for them to do it. And you, you can create serve, you can create any type of systems. Uh, we can actually have all type of our organizations, but if we don't understand it at that level, at the individual level, the person that we are servicing, um, we, I think that our approach will not be that effective. Uh, so sometimes we concentrate on the service that we do and not in the need that we're going to attack. So that, that Catholic Charities, uh, we concentrate on the needs instead of what service we provide. Uh, because if we concentrate on the service, we, we kind of limit ourselves. If we concentrate on the need, then we're expanding ourselves. And that's how we, we, we reach out to more stakeholders, to more donors. The, the government leaders need to understand as, as well to ensure, ensure their, their funds and their approach is, is effective. It's not, it doesn't stay at their level. So that that is my uh, that's my advice to them. It just be simple. Yeah. Move move yourself a little bit down to where you at to yeah. your seat, and, and understand who you're serving. You know, it seems so basic, but um, this idea of a user centered design to programming is really uh, people talk about it a lot, but I don't see it as much in practice as I would love to. This idea of um, like you said, moving beyond this set idea about what are your services, what are your programs, and really understand who are your end users, who are the people that you're aiming to serve, and how do you know what they need and what they would use and what, what's most helpful to them. So what have you learned in your organization and um, Catholic Charities, you know, about how to really engage with, your, with the people that you're serving to understand what they need and what they would use in order to inform your programming? We we try to be community based. Yeah. Uh, like this, uh, like the seminar we just came out that he made. He mentioned that we had to be more community led. Yes. Um, so that's how our Catholic Charities. And what what is good about Catholic Charities is that we have eight offices around covering 54 counties, the easternmost county down of North Carolina, and they are embedded to the community. They're embedded in the in community leaders and also to the government leaders. Um, just to expand our um, our approach. So um, I lost the track of the question, but I think it's the what you track. How do you understand the needs of the people that you're aiming to serve in order to have that inform your programming and the services? So there are data, there are, there are data um, data system that will provide that. But sometimes those data systems are skewed, mm. are inclined to to want to to one side to another. So yes, we use that as a base, to, as a starting point. Sure. But we actually go out to the community mm -hmm. to verify if that is correct, mm -hmm. to ensure that whatever we're providing is reaching exactly the need that is 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 in the in the area. So we don't have to then. It, it's hard to to fundraise. It's hard mm -hmm. to find donors. Sure. So we it's, it's hard then. It, it's very painful, frustrating to, that we provide this the the funds that we that we gather. And not reach out to the actual people. Right. So we had to understand that first. We we have a very good um, a very good staff that understand that understand the data, understand how to analyze it to the actual to validate it. Mm -hmm. 
uh, when we go out to the community. So that, that that's the good outreach that we have. We, yeah. have, very, we have a very good outreach program. That's great. Well, and you were talking about your staff, and I think that you know when we talk about what advice you'd give government leaders on how to benefit stakeholders, it's also looking internally within their own offices. You know, are they uh, hiring people from diverse segments of the communities that they're serving who really have live in the communities, you know, grew up there, understand what the needs are, so that as they're advising the government leaders and as they're working together as a team, they really know what you know people in their communities need. So. How do we hire diverse people? How do we create inclusive workplaces so that people really are feel free to be honest about what's you know what's needed, what they're providing, the services and programs they're providing? How do they get an on? How do they institute kind of an ongoing method of feedback from the communities? It sounds like you all have a lot of that in place already at Catholic Charities. And we work we work into improving. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I, what we're trying to implement is that at least every three to four years, we, we go back and we look at our structure uh-huh. and how our governance is in, in our system, the good governance, um, because everything evolves. Yes. So we need to be on par of that evolution, and we need to understand how everything is moving so we don't lose track of, of exactly what we need to do. And I think we're doing a very, a very good job. Of course, we're not there yet because if you're there yet, you stop. Right. Um, I always, I always said that comfortable is a disease. Being comfortable is a disease. Yeah. You have to be a little uncomfortable so you can start searching. Yeah, great. So I think we're doing, we're doing a very good job. Of that. That's great. Yeah. No, I really appreciate your orientation towards uh, organizational change. You know, at Global Citizen LLC, we work with a lot of different companies across the sectors and really encourage organizational leaders to take a fresh look at their organization, at their mission, vision, values, and redo visioning, you know, every few years and then make any kind of alignments that are needed in their mission and their organizational policies, practices, structures to keep up with the times because too often we can get complacent. So how, in, in your organization, your nonprofit organization, have you seen any, any like any barriers that doesn't, um, doesn't meet your needs, that you actually want to promote something, but however, the barriers doesn't allow you to, and, and those are like community, particularly on, with community leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Global Citizen LLC is a consulting firm, we're not a nonprofit organization, but we do work with a lot of nonprofits as well as academic and uh, government, so we do work with government um, officials as well, and, and corporations and academic institutions. And I think too often there's a disconnect between the, the people who are or running the organizations, the services and programs that they're offering, and the communities that they're serving. You know, starting with the leadership structure. Um, do people have a diverse leadership structure at their board, in their board of directors, um, among their organizational leaders? You know, we know from the data that the Center for Nonprofits and others have collected that there's a gap, a racial equity gap, a generational gap in terms of the leadership of nonprofits in North Carolina. And so we really need to change how we're structuring the leadership, that we need to engage more people of color, more young people, um, more LGBTQ and diverse people to be involved in board of directors and in leadership positions. And then how do we create a climate in organizations where people really are free to express themselves openly and honestly in order to create the kind of organizational culture that, re- that again, is representative of the communities that people are aiming to serve. And that's true for government. It's also true for nonprofit and corporations. It is hard. I see it as hard for governments or even for an organization to move from traditional ways, yes. traditional models. So my question is that 
with today's culture, yeah. LBGT culture, uh, how we can implement that without asking, without touching the nerve of that of that group. Like I said, hey, this is the new culture. We need to implement this without, I don't know how, how to put it, but without um, to respect it. I don't think that will be a sure. good word. I think at Global Citizen, we know that diversity matters and representation matters. And, you know, what we've just seen in the recent elections around more diverse people, more women, more young people running for elected office, being elected, um, and then really changing. I just saw this morning an announcement from a representative in New York who's recruiting her staff. And she said specifically, you know, it's not your educational degree that I'm interested in, it's your life experience, just like we were hearing from the recent speaker. It's not which, you know, high prestigious university you matriculated from, but do you have the lived experience? Do you have uh, ideas? Are you an energetic person who's going to go the extra mile to really support our constituents? So I think having more, I know, we know from the evidence that having more diverse representation and leadership will mean that people are doing business in a different way and that they will approach this, you know, this their government service differently. So I think that we have to really push our, uh, we, have, we need to elect more diverse government officials and we need to really look hard um, within our organizations at how we can really intensify our efforts to diverse the leadership, diversify the leadership. Well, I do agree. Yeah. Um, it's a pleasure to meet with you today. Yeah, I yeah. appreciate it. I got a lot of good pointers what? without being... <laughs> <laughs> I wish you well. It sounds okay. like you're providing really important services and I've been uh, really concerned about the Latino community in North Carolina and a lot of the disparities that exist. It, it is. Um, it's a lot of work. Uh, I, I know for sure that probably all the states are going the same same thing. Sure. Um, but North Carolina needs needs a lot more um, clarity of exactly what is going on within their uh, in their states. And I think that little by little, the government leaders need to, like I said, need to come down from their seat, from that yes. level of state analysis, to avoid individual, so they can actually be knowledgeable exactly what is going on. Exactly. I think too many people are holding a lot of biases and yes. misconceptions and stereotypes and that's where, you know, a real uh, re-examination of our, of our biases is important and to unlearn those. You know, the recent conflicts at the border have, you know, and seeing what some, even of my own family members and uh, have commented about that and I've really challenged them you know have you ever have you ever been displaced from your home have you ever had to leave everything and go to a new place and seek sanctuary and just the lack of empathy for people in that situation but I think just too many people don't know what that experience may be like so the more that we can have conversations educate. across differences educate get have people get out of the comfort of their kind of everyday lives and, and uh, go and live with, talk with, eat with people who are different from them. Understand that frustration. Absolutely. So I think that, that is, that's key. But I appreciate your, yeah. your concern and uh, <laughs> uh, I wish you well. And, Thank uh, you. You too. Thank All you. right. Thank you. David Chatham with Angelo Creative. Uh, I'm here with Caitlin Kleinert. Angelo Creative. Hi, David. Hey, Caitlin. And we're going to have a conversation today uh, with Philanthropy Journal. Uh, the question is social media, your nonprofit's friend or foe. What do you think, Caitlin? Well, uh, are they, is uh, social media a nonprofit's friend or foe? 
I think that social media can be a nonprofit's friend with a plan in place and a content calendar. Um, I know that uh, just feeding the content beast can feel so overwhelming and always developing new content can be challenging for uh, any organization, especially nonprofits where capacity is so limited. Um, but just putting a little structure around what you're going to launch monthly or quarterly can really be the difference between, between friend and foe, in my opinion. And also knowing that you, know, you want to focus um, a lot of your content, 80% of it, uh, focused outward into the community. Which is of, hard, right? Because you always want to talk about yourself. You, you want to tell your story, that's right? That's kind of the natural inclination is to talk about yourself. But if you focus outwardly, you know, a lot of the content you don't have to create. It's right. already generated for you and you can repurpose it and, you know, um, give a lot of love to the community collaborators um, who are helping your industry succeed. Yeah, I think... Yeah, what about you? I think I think it's both. I think it certainly can be a friend. I think uh, there's a lot of power in social media that uh, you can reach a lot of uh, eyes and ears uh, with people who may not normally hear your message. Um, but again, to your point, I mean, I think people get intimidated. They want to... Mm. Uh, they want to try to do everything. Uh, they want to be on every platform. They want to right. pr- produce as much content as they can. And that's kind of a recipe for failure in most cases because I think that, uh, you know, what what we recommend to our clients, uh, Angel Oak is a nonprofit marketing firm, and, uh, you know, what we recommend is uh, just really trying to be uh, strategic about, right. about the social media and re- which platforms are your uh, your supporters and your prospective supporters on. So where are you, where are you putting your time and your limited resources so that they're the most effective? And well, we always talk about less being more sometimes, yeah. and you don't have to do 20 things when, you know, five initiatives or tactics will move the dial just as much. I think another, uh, a big question about whether social media can be a friend or foe for a nonprofit specifically is who your audience, who's your audience, yeah, right? right? I mean, if your audience is not on social media, yeah. if your audience is an older demographic that wants to be um, communicated with via in-person and direct mail, then spending a lot of time generating that content beast yeah. is going to, you know, it's not going to move the dial for mm-hmm. you. And, and knowing which platforms are are most relevant to which audiences, right? I mean, the right. average, I think the average age on Facebook now is in the 40s to 50s. So, you know, if you're reaching, want to reach that audience, that's where you want to go. But you don't probably want to be on Snapchat if you're trying if to you're talk trying to, to 40 talk to 50 year olds. Yep. So I think there's those kind of decisions and not... Uh, and it's kind of who cares about what you're doing, right? I mean, not everybody cares about your organization. So, uh, you know, finding where those people live and and also following those organizations that are uh, in a similar space and engaging. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're just focused on producing content and you're not focused on engaging uh, conversation, uh, you're a lot of times just kind of shouting into the wilderness because either nobody's listening or nobody's responding. So well, that's a great point. Social media is a two-way conversation, right? right? right. And that's the value of it. So you absolutely want to be responsive when you want to be. If you know you are active on social media, you want to be following those comments and yeah. and responding to, uh, taking every opportunity to create the conversation online so yeah. people can see it. And I think a lot of times it's it's whose responsibility is it in an organization, right? So in a lot of smaller organizations, they may not have any, barely any full-time staff, much less someone in communication. So right. where does that fall and how does that person um, take ownership of it and do it well? And, you know, so that's a challenge, I think. Uh, and again, that goes back to just trying to be 
strategic about how you approach it. So maybe it's just Facebook or maybe it's just uh, LinkedIn or, you know, depending on your audience and the message you're trying to communicate and then do one thing really well. And then if you've mastered that, then maybe expand and add another channel. And I think that's where the content calendar can really help uh, if the organization... Now, what is a content calendar? Well, a content calendar provides a framework for, you know, either whether it's thematic or topical, um, you know, it provides the framework for what kind of content you're going to produce across your social media channel or channels in any given month or quarter. I think doing them quarterly uh, provides... um, Kind of that thirty thousand foot view where you can dig in yeah. uh, a little more, but it gives a. It, if a nonprofit has volunteers who are running their social media platforms, that content calendar can help a nonprofit um, keep their brand integrity yeah. uh, and and consistency um, above above the bar. Yeah. As the volunteer is donating time, which is just as important as treasure and talent yeah. uh, for nonprofits. And I think one of the just the benefits today of, of technology and everything else. I mean, uh, just with your phone, you can create content quickly That's and right. inexpensively by doing quick videos going live on Facebook, or even now there's native content on LinkedIn. So, you know, you're able to do those things quickly. Right. And, uh, you know, just a two-minute video, uh, I think people will be surprised at the type of engagement they get from a video versus just a flat text post. So Agreed. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned video because I was going to. Like, what about, you know, video is, is such an important type of content and nonprofits, you know, are struggling with budgets. Can they still produce video that's acceptable for social media if it's not professionally done? Yeah. I mean, it, yeah, I think so. I mean, we've... Um, you know, sadly, I've done it, and it's uh, it's been somewhat successful. Uh, you know, it's not know been the highest. Sad. Well, it's not been the highest quality, but uh, you know, I think people. Uh, you know, there's a statistic that's out there that says 80 percent of content on the web will be video by 2020. Wow! So less than two years it. from now, um, you're going to see uh, more and more video on the internet, uh, including social media that is video and if your organization is not producing that in some way you're going to be falling behind and uh, uh, kind of left out of that uh, conversation because people are expecting to see that's kind of the baseline uh, is now that there's some level of content that doesn't mean everything has to be video Mm -hmm. but there should be something on there that is video and uh, it should be represented, you know, as some percentage of your content, you know, maybe half your content, maybe a fourth of your content, but something should be. Right. And it doesn't all have to be professional. I mean, I think it's good to have some of that, to have a nice, really, a nice brand video about your organization that you can have uh, available. Uh, but it, it can be as simple as interviewing a recipient of your, of your work or a donor and talk about right. why they support your organization or your director just about something exciting or new that's going to happen this next year. So those are easy ways and inexpensive ways that you can produce content and make social media your friend and not your phone. foe. Right. And back to that content calendar, what we always say, David, to our clients is that, you know, if you <clears throat> are doing um, a lot of tactics without any strategy, you're throwing darts to a wall and yeah. not, not a, a dartboard or certainly not the bullseye. So even just um, creating a content calendar with two or three goals, you know what your tactics are trying to yeah. achieve. You can measure success on the back end. Um, you know, that's a lot more friendly yeah. than just trying to 
do something every day and drowning and, and never knowing if you're actually achieving what you, you set and, out and to achieve. I think that's a good point, and maybe we'll end on this point, but it's, you know, uh, using analytics is a, a, can be a critical part of understanding if your social media is working or not. There so, you go. So you determine whether or not you want to continue on that platform. So I think really uh, it doesn't have to be uh, elaborate. I think uh, all of the platforms have some degree of, of analytics on them. So just see how, how many people are following you, how many people are engaging with your content through likes and shares, uh, what kind of content is being liked and shared the most and engaged with. And just try to do that on a, even just a monthly basis will help ensure uh, a greater degree of success with social media. And you know, truly make it a friend and, and not a and foe. not a foe. So that's a great way to job. conclude. Thanks, no, David. No, 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 I'm Claire Jordan. I'm with Capital Development Services. I'm the Director of Marketing and Philanthropic Engagement. I'm Oshana Watkins. I'm the Executive Director of Wake Enterprises. We provide jobs to people with disabilities in Raleigh, North Carolina. So Claire, what do you like about working with nonprofits? Nonprofits have been my career from day one, from before I had a career, because it started in college uh, at NC State where I started a Habitat campus chapter. And ever since then, I had that bug. Okay. If you want to do something to help make the world a better place, this is the field to do it in. And now I get to do it with all kinds of nonprofits all the time, and I say I have the best job ever. I love it. How about you? I agree. I agree. So I'm kind of like you. I started in college as well. Um, I think I first was dance marathon at UNC Greensboro. I was on the board of the first dance marathon and I had to raise money for that. What is that? Um, <laughs> raising some money. So I, I got the bug then and then my first job out of school was uh, United Way. And then now I'm here at Wake Enterprises. So I clearly love helping people. Um, and one of the things I like best is walking into my building, having a participant, a person with disability, come up and see me and say, hi, how are you? I missed you. I'm having a great day. You know, that makes what I do worth it, seeing the smiles on their faces, the days when they get their paychecks, and they're so happy about what they have accomplished. So you get the hands-on. Yes. For us, in the consulting end of it, we don't always get that as much. We get to hear the stories about it, but our job is to help tell your story better or to more people so that you can do more of what you do. So I guess I like the strategy of the big picture behind that and figuring out how can we make your service have a greater impact. Well, and as a small nonprofit, we need your services and need things like that. We want to focus on the mission of our organizations. We want to you know, get people with disabilities jobs. We want to make their day fulfilling. And if I'm having to write an annual report or go visit a donor or things like that, it does take up some time. So I appreciate what you guys have done. I've been to plenty of your conferences. And um, as a small shop, you've given us different tools and strategies so I can get those little pieces done behind the scene so I can still focus on the mission of the organization. I was just talking to somebody a second ago who was saying why she likes being here. So I don't often sit in on somebody else's session. I hardly ever do that. And she was saying that how much she liked just the interaction, the conversation, that she can go back and be recharged. And I've heard that before, mm -hmm. but like 
seeing somebody really be excited about going back to their job in a sense that I get excited every time right. I get to go to a new client because yeah. we get to bring them something fresh. But I forget, I think, that you all need that refreshing. That is time. absolutely right. Whoever said that, she is absolutely <laughs> correct. Um, the speaker this morning was so engaging, mm-hmm. so involving. He, I didn't even need my coffee, which is, um, you know. Um, because he recharged me this morning, and he Good. gave us a focus on why we do this. And he also, being an executive director himself, could feel our pain. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't just up there giving us the motivational yeah. speaking. He lives it, so he understood our, our plight. And then these sessions um, throughout the day will also help us. And even if I just get one nugget or two nuggets mm-hmm. that I can implement now, Today has been totally worth it. That's good. I, I liked him. I thought he was fun um, and taking a true understanding of it. I wanted to push him a little more. Did mm-hmm. you? Like, I wanted a little bit of, I wanted him to go a little deeper mm-hmm. into, okay, you say that people need tools to have these conversations. What are they? Uh, yeah. And I also wanted to disagree with him a little bit on a couple of things. And I think sometimes people are afraid to speak up to a speaker and do that. Yeah, I de- definitely, because it's intimidating. It's a yeah. huge crowd, and then you don't want to kind of go against the yeah. grain. But yes, and I, I wonder like if the, he'll have those at his session. You know, I, so I went to one. Oh, to go. yeah, and I okay. like the um, concepts. I, I want to push back a little bit on the, I think, that relational, that piece of philanthropy is so key to what we do. Right. And that sometimes that's too easy to get lost mm-hmm. in those conversations where you talk about um, offending people or, you know, how ca- careful we have to be around things. But if we just listen, right, then we are relational and we're not going to offend. And I think um, sometimes some of the responses get to be mm, sort of those bite-sized nuggets that yeah. you can rely yeah. on and use. But, but anyway, I, I like and it. And it is. It's, it is kind of hard with the relational and the offense. I was talking to a guy last night um, at a restaurant, just happened to meet him. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about nonprofits. He asked what I did, mm-hmm. and he owns all these businesses. It was clear he was wealthy and had a bunch of businesses. And he talked about how his daughter was in a nonprofit, and he had to continually help her because of the, the money. Yeah, you know, somebody said that to me of. And um, I was talking to him, and I said, you know what? I would love to be able to pay my people more. You mm-hmm. know, and it's nice to tout that you have a low administrative yeah. cost, but why do people have to work for nothing? And they're doing such great work. Mm-hmm. You know, his thing was, well, you know, they signed up for this when they came to this field. And I was trying to educate without being yeah. offensive, saying, yeah. we need to look at it different. And it's not all like that. I think it's a misconception, too, that everybody that works for a nonprofit gets paid beans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's not true. Well, we work in our search firm component with people who make six-figure salaries all the time in mm-hmm. nonprofits. And there's nothing wrong with it. Yes, if there's nothing wrong with a top quality professional. They're worthy of their salary. Why are we afraid to pay them what they're worth? And they're doing such great work for this community and a lot of times helping vulnerable populations. Oh, yeah. I talked to somebody this week who was on the salary range, hesitant to push an ED level up above 70. And I'm thinking, you need to be above 80. I mean, yeah. you're nowhere in the realm of being able yeah. to hire the caliber candidate that you want that for you that need. salary. Yeah. yeah, how are you going to do that and make that work? And 
the understanding, the fear underlying that was, I've got to get, I've got to sell it to my board. Right. And they're looking at it as a cost. Oh my gosh, that's really going to cost me. Versus, what are you investing in when you get that? And what's going to be the return on that? Investment? Exactly. They're losing that piece. Exactly. Well, that's why we like nonprofit work. Yes, salary. That's why we like nonprofit work, you know. So I think this has been a good talk. It was great talking Always to you. Hi, this is Jessica Ayler. I'm the Vice President of Community Engagement at Triangle Community Foundation in Durham, North Carolina. And I am Michelle Serrano-Mills with the Next Generation of African American Philanthropist Giving Circle, a fund at the Triangle Community Foundation in Durham, North Carolina. So, um, Michelle, you and I have talked um, extensively over the years about what motivates and incentivizes and just inspires you to give in different ways. And you've talked about time, giving time, giving talent, treasure, which is money, um, but also testimony. And so where did that come from? And tell me a little bit more. Well, thank you, Jessica. I appreciate that question because um, we do have a fund at Triangle Community Foundation. And um, our model has always been based on that we lead with our dollars, but there's so much more that we can bring to the table or that we can contribute through our time, talent, and testimony. And so when we think about our time, we think about what can we do from a voluntary effort? What can we do to help other people connect with resources and information? So one of the things we've done in the past is volunteered. For example, my husband, Lindsay Mills, and I, who are founding members of what we call NGAP, Next Generation of African American Philanthropists, we actually have done financial literacy classes for organizations that we've either funded or through connections with other organizations. So that's one way that we can share our time and talent, our knowledge that we have. And so again, it's just making the contribution richer or our donation or donor experience richer. And then the other thing is our testimony is we try to make sure that we share our experiences. We talk about what it means to be part of a giving circle. So it's the power of one person coming together with other individual people to collectively gather funds and to be able to make more impact. So a person coming into a giving circle may feel like, you know, as an individual donor, I may not feel like I can make a big impact because I can't give big dollars, but if I, I collectively um, join in with you, then our gift can be more impactful. So we really focus on the model of giving circles that we follow is you um, start with your dollars, your treasure, and then along with that, you add in your time, talent, and testimony so that you can have a much richer experience and more connection with the community that you're trying to, to give to. You know, we have seen at the Triangle Community Foundation, working with so many families across the Triangle, an interest in giving collectively, giving together as a family, um, but also giving together with others. Recently, we held a grants and action tour, which means we go out into the community and see what our nonprofit partners are doing on the ground. We've been wanting to connect donors with each other, donors directly with nonprofit organizations that they're supporting so that they can think about other ways to give. It might be giving more money, it might be giving their time, like you're talking about, as projects come up or as volunteer opportunities like board service, but it also might be just storytelling and sharing the 
good work of the organizations that they're supporting with each other. So we're seeing a growing interest in groups of people wanting to learn together, to connect, to, to know more about the impact that they're able to support in the community. Right. And one of the things I've really appreciated, Jessica, with the work that you've done, as well as Triangle Community Foundation, which we call TCF, <laughs> is understanding how important it is that as a community foundation, you're really expanding, you know, what it means to bring community into the work that you're doing. And so can you talk a little bit about that in terms of kind of in your role and where TCF is going and just trying to make sure that there are more people at the table? Um, more voices at the table, and some of the things that you're doing, like some of the events that you've hosted, where you are bringing, allowing that space, giving a space for people to be able to come in and do that. We think that the role of a community foundation is more than sending checks out the door. We think it's important to bring community voices together, bring different ideas, um, different perspectives, so that people understand and get to know maybe a different approach to a problem and come up with a solution together. So we have for years had advisory committees that have made grant recommendations in each of our focus areas, um, ranging from youth literacy um, to environmental conservation to community development. And we think it's really important for community voices to be at the table in developing strategies together. We think that community is such a value that Triangle Community Foundation has that we need to bring different perspectives, geographically, age, um, race, to the table together so we can learn um, as we go. And we come up with changes that we want to see in our community um, as a community. Well, I really appreciate that. I know I've attended events such as the What Matters events. I've attended donor meetings. Those have been great opportunities to meet other donors, as well as uh, recently you all hosted a Giving Circle meeting. And so that was great to be able to meet up with other Giving Circles who follow different models, learn from them, um, to be able to see what are they doing differently, what are they doing the same, what are some of the challenges, and understanding you're not in it alone <laughs> with your right. challenges. Um, but it was just a great event, and I think everybody left there feeling like this was, you know, good a good time spent on a, I think it was a Wednesday evening or whatever day it was, but it was a good time spent to be able to make those connections, and I know it seems like the conversations were going to continue after that event finished. So yes. thank you for the work that you're doing there and for joining me um, in this podcast, and we want to thank uh, the Philanthropy Journal for uh, giving us this opportunity yes, thank you. <laughs> to share uh, from our experiences and to include our voices. So thank you, Philanthropy Journal. Hello, I'm Johanna Maynard Edwards, Executive Director of the Women's Theater Festival of North Carolina. And I'm Deb Royals. I'm the Founding Artistic Director for the Justice Theater Project and currently the producer for Live Mahab Productions. What is one piece of advice you would give business leaders in your community to enhance how they can benefit your stakeholders? And what I would say is come out and see the work of what our companies are doing. I encourage everyone, for that matter, to come out and see Motown Christmas, which is the current production being done by Live Imaha Production and opens on December 15th and 16th at the Garner Performing Arts Center and the 28th, 29th, and 30th of December at Cary Arts Center. 
And I think when we see our business leaders in the community out there supporting the arts, there's a way to create this beautiful relationship in that moment. I totally agree. Be generous with your time, come enjoy the work, and see how your business can tie into the content of the show. With Women's Theater Festival, we've had great partnerships in that way, and it has created a more enriched and more meaningful experience for everyone. Beautiful, beautiful. What is the key to the success of your work? I would say that it's creating this sense of family around every production, every project, the company as a whole in a way that is eclectic and diverse and respectful and open. And once that environment has been brought together as a family or you create a, an environment that makes you feel like you're a part of that family, I think that you can't fail because you would never fail your family. <laughs> oh, so beautiful. I would say that my, I feel most proud of my work and I feel my work is most successful when I inspire people enough to feel engaged and like they own the project that they are key stakeholders in our success and they feel that the company's success is their success and their success is the Amen. company's success. What do you like about working with nonprofits? I like saving the world. <laughs> uh, I've always been a nonprofit person. I've never thought about money and profit to my own detriment. And since I was a very tiny, tiny child, all I cared about was justice. Injustice made me crazy, even as a child. If one cousin, when we're all, all together as a family, was being treated in a way that I felt was unjust, I, uh, I, I boycotted, I protested the family <laughs> gathering. And so I'm particularly drawn to nonprofits that put art, justice, compassion, empathy, and people's needs together and finding ways to use art and theater, my medium, to change people's lives and to make the world a little better. Amen. I think that the arts provide this beautiful place that I like to call the liminal space of possibility. And in that space, anything can happen. Um, and I think nonprofits in general provide a platform where we can explore all of that. And, and specifically for me, I'm a huge uh, proponent of addressing issues of social concern uh, via the arts. Um, a lot of my work has been in that and will continue to be. How does your nonprofit balance individual interests and the common good? I think Labim Mahab is doing a very good job of balancing individual interest and the common good because the company is, its mission is all about having conversations around the African diaspora. And it's wonderful to be able to support that in a way that creates a conversation and support people who need to be in leadership role, who are now in leadership roles in this company that you don't often see. I often feel like some companies begin with the right thing in mind, and then there's a shift where it becomes more about money and making, you know, how much money they can bank into their company, forgetting who ultimately is being served by that, and equity around how that money is dispersed. Yeah. Well, I feel like this is one of the things that Women's Theater Festival does so well. Individually, women are getting 
to make theater. They're getting more opportunities. Their their voices are being heard. They're making art and getting paid to do it, even if it's only a little bit. Women getting to individually benefit from the opportunity to have a platform to make art. And it's good for everyone. It's for there to be more equity in the theater. It's good for the whole community to increase the number of women's voices that are being heard and that mm -hmm. tickets are being purchased and we're all getting to share and witness in the stories that deserve to be told. I hope more and more that women of color and yes. um, that their voices become a stronger part of that conversation as well. Uh, there's oftentimes in theater and a lot of the performing arts um, entertainment in general is often manipulated and, and led by too often white males that um, have this perception of power without even knowing it. And so I think the more and more that we can include women of color as well, it's hugely important. And I think more people like Johanna and I need to get out there and support and perpetuate places for roles for moments of making and doing good, good work within these nonprofits that we are a part of. Thank you for talking to me. Thank you for talking to me too. I've really enjoyed this. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Experience. TNE is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Gallagher. Our graduate assistant editor is David Mueller. And our communications assistant is Haley Jones. This episode was produced by David Mueller, who also wrote our theme music. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience, and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play.